You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. So I wrote a book. It's a fantasy adventure novel for young adults or adults who still feel young, and it's called The Adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Now it's not available yet, but it will be soon. We'll keep you updated. To celebrate the upcoming release of Woodrow the Wicked, I'm featuring the first section of the novel here on the podcast. It makes a great short story, which I'm calling Cephalopod Sign. So, gather the family, because on this episode of Lies and Half-Truths, part one of Cephalopod Sun. First, a short break. Stay with us. This episode's sponsor is the great young adult science fiction and fantasy writer, Sydney Swanson. We featured the first chapter of her excellent sci-fi novel, Saving Mars, on this podcast not too long ago. You can pick up that book and a lot more at her website, sydneyswanson.com. That's C-I-D-N-E-Y-S-W-A-N-S-O-N.com. Go check it out. And now, Cephalopod Sign. Part 's reputation preceded him. The rumors of a magic airship, said to be piloted by a wicked boy who had murdered his family and burned his village, were already circulating throughout the South Sea before Woodrow had even arrived in the region. The flying vessel was known to be the rightful property of a humble knight from a small island in the Dewey Archipelago, where the boy too hailed from. They said the crew consisted of three monsters, one a beast, one a magical giant, and the third a demon disguised as an angel of light. Most insidious of all was the boy himself. He had participated in some dark sacrament to summon an army of subterranean fiends who brought about the island's destruction on his behalf. 
When Woodrow came down from the north in his strange vessel, a gleaming monument of glass and shining ore that hung in the sky without the aid of either propeller or balloon and blew about with no regard for the direction of the wind, these terrible rumors were all but confirmed. Soon, every port dweller in the south would know the vessel by name, but would only speak that name in hushed tones. The Moon Shadow as for Woodrow, at the present moment, his concern for his reputation or that of his ship took a back seat to the hollow in his stomach. He sat with his legs dangling from the lowest of the moonshadow's three rare balconies, his fishing line trailing some thirty feet to the ocean surface below. Next to him, Tambraline, the great cat, peered down into the clear water, her green eyes flitting about and her slitted pupils dilating with unmet desire. Woodrow scratched under her tangled mane. They'll start biting sooner or later, he reassured her. But the great cat just shrugged away from him and stalked to the far side of the deck. Woodrow scowled after her. I'm hungry too, you know. As a point of fact, Woodrow's last meal had been two and a half days ago, and he wasn't sure he could even feel the hunger anymore. But Tamberline also had not eaten and the boy wasn't at all certain how long it would be before the great cat would start to see him as a potential meal. A seagull landed on the railing just a few feet away. It studied the moonshadow's hull as if it knew the vessel to be the marvel of alchemy and engineering that it, in fact, was. Woodrow's first thought, upon seeing the bird, was to wonder if Tamberline would prefer to eat it feathered and cooked, or merely raw. Tamberline noticed the gull, too. She stalked back from her side of the deck, tail flicking about like a gray flame. The gall did not seem to notice her, however. It cocked its head to one side, all the more focused on the moon shadow. The great cat went into her pre-pounce wind-up, head low, haunches in the air. She sprang. In response, the gall did something entirely unexpected. It lifted a foot or so off the railing and spun like a propeller. Woodrow felt a gust toss his hair. For a fraction of a second, Tamberline hung in mid-air before tumbling backward and skidding across the deck. A hiss in her throat, Tamberline regained her feet, her claws screeching as they dragged against the floor. The gull had lit back upon the rail to resume his investigation of the ship. Woodrow's eyes went from the bird to the cat, to the bird, to the cat again. The great cat wound up for another pounce. Tam-Tam, no! Woodrow cried. Too late. Tamberline had already sprung. The gull made no noise. He just lifted off again. Then, wings splayed and beak pointed at the sky, the gull spun in one full rotation. The resultant gust of wind knocked Woodrow against the rail and tossed Tamberline overboard. Woodrow could see his pet falling for an impossibly long time, plunging toward the sea until another rogue gust caught her, held her briefly then pushed her away, flailing. Tam-Tam, he called after her, then turned to demand an explanation, but even before the absurdity of such a prospect occurred to him, he found the bird gone. Woodrow studied the white water ripple where the great cat had landed, but the spot was soon overtaken by a rushing current moving away from the ship. What just happened? he muttered. Half a minute later, Woodrow pushed into the moonshadow's bridge, breathing heavily. 
He charged past Hartford to the helm at the center of a bubble of clear glass. He stood on the platform and looked down through the glass at the sea below. Bring her down, he commanded Hartford. Tam-Tam's overboard. With several snaps and clicks of his metal joints, Hartford's posture went rigid. His eyes, glowing from the shadows within his helmeted head, grew large and round. Don't just sit there, Woodrow told the great metal golem. This is an emergency. The elongated, jagged stone set in Hartford's broad chest seemed to flare up with blue flame, and Woodrow felt as if the floor beneath him had given way. The moonshadow lit into the water, and soon the cockpit was three-quarters submerged in crystalline indigo. Woodrow squinted about. He scratched the back of his neck, then bolted from the cockpit. The boy emerged from the moonshadow's hull, onto the open deck, to the sound of water lapping against the vessel's flanks. He found the angel, exactly as he expected him to be, golden wings folded across his back, standing like a silent sentry, staring at nothing and yet past and through everything. Woodrow spat on the deck. Hey, Feathers, my cat's overboard. Don't suppose you could, I don't know, fly out there and see if you could find her? The angel turned to look through the boy. He stroked his smooth, square chin. Boy, he addressed him, explain to me this magic behind monetization. Woodrow squinted at the angel. What? Previously, you stated what appears to be an old adage on this mortal sphere. Money is power. What does that mean exactly? Woodrow blinked at the angel several times in disbelief before responding. Can't you see this is an emergency? The angel seemed not to notice the boy's urgency. Would not the acquirement of this money greatly aid us in our sacred quest? Woodrow jabbed a finger at the angel. Your sacred quest? I don't have time for this. Thanks for nothing if you're not going to help. The angel turned away to resume his vigilance. Later then, he said, as if the boy had merely declined an invitation to tea. Woodrow spat on the deck again, then stomped back inside. The angel had few virtues in the boy's view, but patience did seem to be one of them. The cockpit echoed with the metallic sound of Hartford's fingers tapping against his chair's armrests. Woodrow peered out through the glass, his eyebrows pressed toward each other. Finally, he threw himself into the big pilot seat. He pulled the altitude lever. The moon shadow rose up out of the water. He held his head in his hands and stared at his knees until he felt Hartford's heavy palm on his shoulder. He looked up at the golem with red, wet eyes. She's gone, he croaked. The golem raised his head and pointed. Woodrow looked. On the horizon lay an emerald peak. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. Hmm, the current took Tam Tam in that direction. He lowered the goggles sitting on his brow. He wore a gauntlet on his left arm. He placed it over a glass lens set in the armrest on the left-hand side of the pilot seat. That was no normal seagull. How did it... If it sent Tam-Tam to that island, we better have a look. Tamberline washed ashore in a heap of tangled fur, coughing hair and seawater into the sand. The roaring of the waves behind her made her feel anxious, and the sand beneath her paws itched. The smell of decaying leaves came to her on the salty air. 
her eyes watered, blurring her vision as they searched inland. She made out the jagged green shape of a tree line on the far side of the sand and began to paw her way blinking and shaking toward the jungle. Her eyes had cleared by the time she felt the twigs and moist earth of the jungle floor. Her coat itched. She ran her tongue down the length of her back and began working her way down her left side. When she turned her neck to do the same on the right, something caught her eye. Her ears turned back and her spine arched. She hissed. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. His father used to do the same thing when he was working out a problem. As a young boy, Woodrow would mimic the gesture from below his father's workbench, watching the man lean over a set of schematics or an alchemist's vial or some tome on physics. The boy would practice rubbing the back of his neck while reading his own books or building castles in the mud. But it wasn't until he took charge of the moon shadow that he realized he was doing the gesture unconsciously. He had followed Tamberline's tracks to a pile of sand in the woods. From there, it looked like she had climbed a tree, fallen from a broken branch, climbed another tree, leapt to a third tree, tore the vines off the trunk of that tree, rolled around in the underbrush, then disappeared into the thicket. She was definitely here, said the boy. That's a relief. Hartford stood at nearly twice the boy's height, but did not share his confidence. His glowing yellow eyes darted here and there. His neck squeaked oillessly. He held his hands together, clicking the metal tips of his fingers against each other in a mechanical rhythm. Don't be nervous, said the boy, patting the golem on the chest. She's fine. We just have to find her. Now, here's the plan. I search from the ground. You search from the air. I'll meet you on the other side of the island. At this, Hartford's fingers accelerated their tapping. What? I'm fine down here. Or are you just nervous about piloting the moon shadow? You're getting better at it. Still a bit slow and clumsy, but you'll do fine on your own. The golem's fingers were zipping along like pistons. His chin squeaked and twitched. Relax. Just go back to the ship and start looking. I'll see you on the other side. The boy knew if he didn't walk away, Hartford would just go on making his silent protest. So he turned and headed into the thicket. A moment later, he heard the golem's squeaking joints and heavy footfalls trailing off in the opposite direction. There wasn't much to go on after the bedlam Tamberline had left near the sand pile, but there seemed to be an occasional scuffle here and there that the boy took for her handiwork. The one mistake my father ever made was thinking he could tame a great cat, he thought. On the day his father brought Tamberline home after one of his journeys abroad, he had told Woodrow of the ancient Nephilim, who had kept great cats as pets, and how no one since had dared to do so. She was a mere kitten then, eyes still closed. She needed to be fed milk from a bottle. Now she's a monster, Woodrow allowed himself a wry smile. My monster. The jungle thrummed with the buzz of insects and the calls of exotic birds. He swatted at things tickling his neck and brushed away hanging greenery as he made his way through the thicket. A sudden prick at the back of his right thigh hardly registered on him until a radiating numbness spread from the spot throughout his entire leg. He leaned against a tree trunk and poked the muscle with his finger. It felt like touching a stranger. What's happening? He said aloud. Poison! Came a cracking voice in reply. 
The old man emerged from the leafy foliage, crowned in camouflage, hunching and snarling toothlessly. He wore canvas trousers, but no shirt. His chest looked like a leather bag pulled tight against a human skeleton, so that Woodrow half expected to see a zipper running up his spine. The man held a hollow bamboo shaft. Who are you? Woodrow demanded. I'm asking the question, Sonny, cackled the old leather bag man. He held one end of the bamboo to his lips. It was a poison dart. Just one crippled your leg. You'll be fine in an hour or so, but this next one is pointed at your throat. Now start talking. Woodrow swallowed. I said start talking, the old man hissed. What do you want me to say? Leatherbag narrowed his eyes. Smart, Alec, huh? You're coming with me. I can't walk. Get a stick. Use it as a cane. And don't try anything clever, smart Alec. I got plenty more darts. They walked for more than an hour, leather bag behind, Woodrow leading the way, hobbling with his improvised cane. Leatherbag directed the boy to a rough path and told him to follow it. By the time they came to the end of the path, Woodrow's leg had regained feeling. He shook it out and found it no worse for the wear. They now stood before a wide crescent of sand, the horns of which stretched out into the sea and angled toward each other. A bay, thought the boy, or a giant lagoon. In either case, this is as good a place as any to meet up with Hartford. He reached for the goggles sitting on his brow, only to feel the sting of leather bag's bamboo as it smacked against the back of his hand. I told you not to try anything smart, the old man snarled. That was a warning. Woodrow held his wrist and shook out the pain in his hand. That hurt. Leather bag grinned an evil, near toothless grin. Good. In the center of the bay, a small ship had weighed anchor and sat smoking from its twin exhaust stacks. Woodrow could hear the hum of the ship's engine from where he stood on the far side of the beach. Beyond the points of the bay's crescent and the deeper seawater lay a wide barge piled with dull metal objects, broken ship masts, and more than one rubber wheel. Your salvagers? Leatherbag grunted. Keep walking. Head to that rowboat. He gestured with the bamboo toward a boat grounded in the sand. You row. The old man sat at the boat's tiller. Take us out. Remember, one of these darts to your neck and you'll be paralyzed. That will make it pretty hard for you to swim when I push you overboard. So just do what you're told and don't try anything. Woodrow sighed. He used the oar to push off into the calm water. The water was clear, and the boy could see down to the sandy floor. One look, and he knew why the salvagers were here. The floor of the lagoon was littered with sunken iron ships trailing away from the shore into the open sea. Long, hollow cylinders protruded everywhere from the submerged vessels. Cannons. These are antique warships, said Woodrow, in breathless wonder. There was a battle here. Leatherbag raised his eyebrows. Well, look at the brain on you. Keep your mouth shut now. Then row. We're almost there. Woodrow peered over his own shoulder to see the salvage ship, now quite near. And something he had not expected, a girl, about his own age, stood on the ship's deck. 
She wore her hair pulled back and bushels of tight black curls. A hood and cowl lay about her otherwise bare neck and shoulders, her skin a bronze as dark as the deep sea. She set her eyes upon him with cool indifference, then turned and disappeared from the deck. Who was that? The old man gave him a crooked smile. Don't you concern yourself with her, lover boy. I didn't say anything about being in love with her. I just... Oh, why am I talking to you? The old man laughed, a misery-savoring laugh. Row, boy! I am... I'll forget it. When they arrived at the ship, the plump face of an old woman with thin gray strings for hair peered out at them from the deck. What's this? Her voice was lower than the old man's and came out like her thick throat were filled with gravel. Found him hunting. I wasn't hunting, Woodrow protested. Shut up, the old couple spat out in unison. I found this little sneak while I was hunting. He came on an airship, had a big night or something with him. The old woman made a sound like she was gargling the rocks in her throat. Mm. That's not good, she said. Wait till you hear about the ship. The old woman tossed out a rope. What about it? Leather bags secured the rowboat to a ladder. No balloon. Just hangs in the sky like it's on ropes from the broken moon itself. The old man poked at Woodrow. Climb. The deck of the ship was slick with oil and cluttered. Small bits of engine, pieces of armor, broken firearms, metal piping. All of it rusted and piled here and there without any apparent order. Don't get any smart ideas about making off with our salvage, the gravel-throated woman said. Woodrow gave an exaggerated look at the sky. I wouldn't dream of it. He's being smart, said Leatherbag. That's the thing about kids. They think they're so smart. Makes me glad I'm barren, said Gravelthroat. What about that girl I saw? Woodrow asked. She ain't ours, said Gravelthroat, as if it were an accusation. Pretty girl like that. I'm not surprised. He's being smart again. I'd give him another smack with my rod. At that moment, the girl came out of the ship's cabin with a knife in one hand and an apple in the other. The old couple watched as she brushed past, sat on the railing across from them, and began carving the skin off the fruit. No one spoke. Hello, Woodrow said at last. Hi, said the girl, without looking up from her work. The apple peel came off in one long strand, hanging in loops all the way down to the greasy wood of the deck. She let the peel fall and began cutting the apple into wedges. She looked up and saw everyone watching her. Oh, don't let me interrupt. Please continue. Is there, um, something you need help with, little miss? Said the old woman, trying hard to raise her voice an octave. No, nothing. But please, continue what you were doing. What is it you were doing, exactly? We, we are interrogating this intruder, Leatherbag answered. We have a registered claim on this salvage site, and he's intruding on it, put in Gravelthroat. I understand. So, whatever you do, the Privateers Guild will support you, said the girl. The old couple exchanged looks. All right, then. The woman cleared some gravel from her throat and turned to Woodrow. Talk, kid. I am curious, however, interrupted the girl. 
If you plan on doing any actual salvaging today, we've been here for almost two weeks, and all you've done is dump barrels in the bay. We told you! That damnable giant Seth! wailed Leatherback with sudden impatience. The girl cored a wedge of apple. Can't you work around it? The old man opened his mouth and formed several round words without making a sound. There's a giant cephalopod down there, said Woodrow, dashing to look over the side of the deck. Must be a hermit cephalopod. Let me handle this. That monster is very dangerous, young lady. No, it's not, Woodrow interrupted. Not if you know how to talk to it. The three strangers turned to look at Woodrow. I mean, he began again, they are dangerous, very dangerous, if you make them mad. So, said the girl, if you were to drop depth charges near the creature, for example, she glared at the old couple. It has to go, Weatherbag insisted. It's taken up residence inside a firebrand battlecruiser, the most valuable vessel down there. It's using it as a shell. Why are we even arguing about this? The old woman barked, abandoning any effort to sweeten her rough voice. This is our ship and our claim. You're just here to observe. The girl ate a piece of apple. Well, I certainly haven't observed anything yet, she said, chewing. I'd hate to think this experience was a waste of my time. Oh, don't you worry about that, missy. There will be plenty of salvaging as soon as we do away with this monster, but after we deal with this interloper. He's no one. Look at him, said the girl, with a dismissive shrug. He came on an airship, Leatherbag said. My father owns three fleets of airships. Not like this one. Fine, do what you want with him, but do it quick. I want to see some salvaging, sometime this decade, perhaps before my drift is over. The old woman's cheeks puffed out red. We don't take orders from you. I don't care who your father is or what tattoo you have. This is our ship. She jabbed a finger at the deck. As you say, the girl shrugged. Do what you want. I'll wait. I just hope the wait turns out to be worth my time. With that, the girl returned to the cabin and closed the door behind her. The old couple exchanged looks, their faces masks of hate, even uglier than before. Let's get him to the altar, said Gravelthroat. Leatherbag grabbed Woodrow by the collar. Come on, boy! Woodrow shrugged out of his hold, but went along. I can help you with your cephalopod problem. Sure you can. Kneel here. Woodrow was standing before a small statue at the bow of the ship. The figure had wings and fish scales, and spewed water from its mouth. At the statue's feet lay dried seaweed, a broken pot with barnacles on it, gold coins, green from the sea, and a pile of rusted silver chains. Ipleo, the god of the southern trade winds, said Woodrow. You guys are superstitious. Hold out your hand, Leatherbag growled. Woodrow offered it to him with a scowl. The old man took hold of Woodrow's wrist. Before the boy could react, a dagger slid across his palm. Ow! Why'd you do that? Offering to the god! In my estimation, gods who require blood offerings are more trouble than they're worth. The woman spoke up, her voice heavy with moral authority. Hiplio does not require blood. Hiplio requires a tithe of what we draw from the sea, what he has given us. You got off easy with a few drops of blood. 
Iplio didn't give me to you. I'm not Iplio's to give. The old sea hag and her husband ignored him. Place your hand on the statue. Woodrow breathed deep and rolled his eyes. Fine. Now swear by the southern trade winds and tell the truth. What do you want to know? Just ask. Who sent you? Woodrow sighed. You caught me. I'm a spy. We're here to steal all your sea junk. I knew it, said Leatherbag. Who sent you? The Ripplebottoms? Harry Squalor? I sent me. I'm the captain of my ship. You can't be more than fifteen. You expect us to believe a crew takes orders from a kid? I don't care what you believe. I just want to find my cat and get off this island. The couple studied the boy for several seconds. Where did you get a ship like that? said Gravelthroat, squinting one eye at him. I stole it. The couple exchanged looks. That part, I believe, said the old woman. I heard an interesting story before leaving port not long ago. It's a long way from the Dewey Archipelago, young man. Woodrow did not meet her eyes. He spat on the deck. There's another side to that story, he said. I imagine there is, but probably not one that pays a bounty. How about a ransom? Gravelthroat stroked one of her several chins. Leatherbag ground his gums. Your crew will pay it? Woodrow gave a sharp laugh. My crew? Not a chance. I'll pay the ransom myself. The old couple's faces went blank. What? Woodrow said. You can't pay your own ransom. Why not? No one else will. Then we'll collect the bounty, Gravelthroat said with finality. No, argued Woodrow. That's a stupid idea. The bounty isn't for me. It's for my ship. My crew aren't going to give up my ship, and they aren't going to pay a ransom, but I will. The couple's blank expressions returned. You don't have any money? Did he have any money when you captured him? I didn't check, mumbled Leatherbag. You didn't. Woodrow interrupted the couple's budding spat. I'm not offering you money. I'm offering to solve your problem. We can handle that girl. Girl? What? I'm talking about the cephalopod. The squid monster? It's more like an octopus, actually, but yes, the squid monster. The thing using that battle cruiser you want to salvage as a shell. You shouldn't eavesdrop, boy. You guys were talking right in front of me. That's no excuse. Do you want my help or not? What could you possibly do to help? Glad you asked. The giant hermit cephalopod is an extremely intelligent creature. The natives of the southern islands call them Nanomiho. Some even worship them as gods. Savages do all kinds of stupid things, Gravelthroat sneered. Stupid? Did you know those savages learned how to talk to the Nanomiho? Of course you didn't. Why would you care that you could talk to someone when you can just blow him up instead? That won't work, by the way. Oh, it will work. You said he's using a Firebrand battlecruiser as a shell? You'll have to blow it up to get to him, and I doubt you have enough blasting powder to do that. Even if you do, you've just blown up your best piece of salvage. <sighs> the old woman stroked her chins. How do you even know it's a male? inquired Leatherbag. You haven't seen it. Because females live in the deepest part of the sea where they nest the young. <sighs> said the old woman again. This kid's not as dumb as he looks. He could be making all this up. He ain't. Thank you for your confidence. 
Woodrow put in. So, what do you propose? I assume you have a diving helmet? Of course. Send me down there, and I'll talk to the Naomiho. Convince him to pick a different shell. He picks whatever one he wants, leaves you alone, and you leave him alone. Deal? Back up, kid. You want to talk to the squid? Sure. I know a little Nanomiho sign. Gravel throat and leather bag were silent for almost 15 seconds. What's the worst that could happen? Came the girl's voice from behind. She had been listening, unnoticed. If the Ceph eats him, you lose nothing. Gravel throat just kept stroking her chins. After a moment, she said in the highest octave she could muster, Will you children please give us a moment of privacy so that we can discuss this? She smiled with her lips only. Fine, said the girl. Come on, I'll see to that cut. Thank you for listening to Cephalopod Sign, Part 1, on the Lies and Half-Truths podcast. This story was written and performed by A.P. Weber. The music was provided by the mighty Mackenzie Stubbard, and Josiah Martins wrote the theme song. Meg Weber produced the show along with me, your host, A.P. Weber. I'd like to invite you to get in touch with us. You can email your feedback to truthsandhalftruths at gmail.com. Of course, we're on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is at APWeber. In particular, we'd be interested in hearing from other writers who want their work to be featured on a future episode. The email again is truthsandhalftruths at gmail.com. Also, please consider reviewing this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found it. Thanks. On the next episode of Lies and Half-Truths, Cephalopod Sign Part 2, in which Woodrow is eaten by a giant hermit Seth. Could happen. You won't know unless you listen. 